familiarity breeds contempt, or at least it can. Sometimes we can know something or someone so well that we start to lose the respect that we ought to have. It can happen with kids and their parents as they grow and mature and friendships actually develop between the parents and the kids, which is a wonderful thing. Sometimes that closeness, that familiarity, can cause kids to forget the God-given roles that exist there and the, the respect and the honor that God commands in that relationship. Sometimes we just get a little too comfortable. It's possible for that to happen between us and God. We can get so used to the condescension of God in taking on flesh and in, in knowing us on a, an intimate and personal level and, and we sing about what a friend we have in Jesus that we can get too comfortable. We can forget the transcendence of God. We can forget the fact that He's entirely other than we are. He can become so familiar, so close, so comfortable that we lose the respect we ought to have. I found that this is possible to happen even with the Bible. Popular passages and verses ones that everybody knows, ones that we've read a thousand times, perhaps even memorized. It's easy for them to become ho-hum, to lose respect for them, for their majesty, for the greatness of the truth that they contain. And to a certain extent, that's been the case with me for John 3.16 that we turn to this morning. So very familiar. One of the very first verses that I memorized as a child, some 40 years ago probably. It's a verse that we read, that we hear, that we come, come into contact with all the time, and it can lose its impact over time. But having spent this past week chewing on it afresh and anew, coming to realize again why it is that it is so very popular, why we do read it and see it and find it everywhere, is the fact that it is a glorious capturing of the gospel in 24 words. Now, maybe you're new to the church, and this verse hasn't had time for you to lose its luster yet. Or maybe you're like me and maybe it seems old hat. Regardless, my prayer is that this morning the Holy Spirit will take this verse, this very small package, and show us the gospel beauty and riches that it contains. So stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole paragraph for context. And we'll cover the remaining verses next week, but this morning the focus is squarely on this first verse in this paragraph. This is the Word of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And may God bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray for his help now. Oh, Father, would you come and would you make the familiar new again? Would you come in power, Holy Spirit, And shed your light on these 24 words. Perhaps in a new way. Perhaps for the very first time for someone here this morning. To see and to understand the gospel. Maybe this verse has been read or heard or seen a thousand times before. But as yet it has not been accompanied by the Spirit's power then Holy Spirit, would your power fall fresh this morning to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to bring new life. Do something in all of us, we pray, this morning for the sake and for the exaltation of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Now, to try to recover the glory and the grandeur of this verse, if, like me, you've been overexposed to it, or to see the glory of the gospel in this verse for the very first time, I'm going to let this verse answer seven simple questions that you have there in your worship folder. Whose idea was this? What motivated it? Why should this verse shock us? In all of its familiarity, why should this verse still shock us? What did it cost? Who is it for? What's required? And what is it that we're actually given in this verse? Again, that outline's there in the worship folder if that helps you follow along. The first question, whose idea was this? Now, early on in in our study of grammar, we learned to look for the subject of a sentence, right? Who is doing the action? And it's clear when you look at this verse who the subject is. It's God. He is the one taking the action. He's the chief actor. Every other actor in this verse is subordinate to Him. If we were to to diagram this verse, right? That sent a shudder down some of your spines, right? Nightmares from grade school. Diagramming sentences. Were we to diagram this, we would see that every other person taking action is taking a subordinate action to the action that God himself is taking. God is primary. It's his idea. It's his initiative. God, the creator of all that exists, sovereign, holy, majestic, 
Y'all, there's lots of glory and grandeur in that simple truth that the gospel is his idea. He took the action necessary for there to even be a gospel. For God so loved the world. He did it. Now question two, why did he do it? Why? Because of his love. Now I think in my mind, my focus had always been drawn to the giving. More in the, toward the middle of the verse. And I've not spent enough time focused on God's loving here at the beginning. Because technically, if you want to get the diagram out again, right? Loved is the main verb of this whole thing. The giving is subordinate to the loving. The giving flows out of the loving. God's gracious and merciful acts flow out of the fact that he loves. Not because of anything in us, mind you, does he love. But only because of what is in him, because of who he is, because of the fact that John elsewhere will write that God is love. That's who he is. And his giving flows out of that love. Now, that his motivation isn't anything in us should become very clear when we look and read the object of his love. Right? I'm getting deep in the grammar, y'all. What is the object of his love? God so loved the world. And we get the sense right off the bat that his loving the world, well, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for God to love the the whole world. And it is a big deal. And it's such a big deal that it actually should be completely shocking to us. Question three. We read, for God so loved the world, and we think, that's a big deal because, well, because the world is big. Because there's a lot of people in the world. That's why it's a big deal. But that's not a shockingly big deal. The shocking big deal is not that God loved the world because it was so big, but that God loved the world despite it being so bad. That's the shocking thing. See, whenever John talks about the world, and he does quite often, It always has a negative connotation. John wrote this gospel. He would also write three letters to the church that are contained in the New Testament. And the first of those letters, in in chapter 2, verse 15, we're not going to turn there, but he's instructing, he's commanding Christians not to love the world or anything in the world. Because of all of the evil that the world consists of. Don't do it, he says. Do not love the world. It's bad news. And already in this gospel, John has been hinting at it. In the prologue, uh, John, uh, first chapter, verses 9 through 11. The true light, that's the word, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet... The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people 
did not receive him. And even more explicit in today's paragraph, verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Folks, loving that darkness is rebellion. And that rebellion has earned for them, has earned for us, perishing that you see later in this verse. God gave that we might not perish. And perish is what we all will do apart from God's saving, intervening work. See, it's not that there's a possibility of perishing that's out there should we not get our acts together. No, perishing is out there as a settled fact and destination for all of us. We weren't born neutral. right? It's, it's not right to say of folks, oh, well, the verdict's still out. We'll have to see how this ends up, which way the scales are tipped. No, the verdict is already there. We, we read it earlier, verse 18 from today's passage, condemned already. Perishing is the just outcome for those who rebel and reject. And that God would love that world? That God would love a world full of rebellious rejectors should leave us shocked and speechless. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He doesn't love us because we're cute and cuddly. He doesn't love us because we're worthy of being loved. He doesn't love us when we get our acts together. No, Paul understood this crystal clear. Romans 5, verses 8 and 10. God shows His love while we were still sinners. God shows His love and gave His Son while we were enemies. In Ephesians 2, He'll call us children of wrath. That's who we are by nature. Rebellious rejectors. People who spit in the face of God. For God so loved the world. Shocking, but true. Question four. What would it look like for Him to love us? What, what would it cost Him to do that? What, what's, what's the price for loving, unlovable people like us. The price is is steep. For God so loved the world that He gave. Now note in verse 16 that it doesn't say sent, right? It says God gave the Son. Now, later in verse 17, making a slightly different point, it's going to say that He sent. But the focus here is on His giving. The fact that this cost him something. This was a sacrifice. 
And when it comes to this giving, three little sub-points here if you're taking notes. Three things to consider about his giving. Note number one, that he had to do the giving because we had nothing to give. He had to do the giving if we were to know him. We had nothing to offer. Empty-handed do we come to him. Bankrupt. Not a penny in our spiritual bank account, only debts. He had to be the one to give. The second thing to consider under his giving is the steep, steep cost of who he gave. His very own and only son. For any father, giving up a son would be gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. But in God giving the Son, He was giving Himself. If you haven't read that quote on the front of the bulletin, you should go back and read it sometime later. In the giving of the Son, He was giving Himself. And it had to be so. The only way for God to forgive our rebellion and remain just and holy at the same time was for him to take on flesh and pay the penalty himself as a substitute in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. It's why John the Baptist, earlier in chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching from a distance, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in giving the Son... In giving himself, God was ripping apart the eternal love and intimate fellowship of the Trinity. The eternal, joyous existence of these three persons together for eternity past, for a time, was ripped apart. Now, friends, we have no idea what that was like. We have no earthly sorrow with which to compare it. Because every grief that we have suffered pales in comparison. But the reality and depth of God's love for rebellious rejectors like us led him to give like that. Y'all, that can't be ho-hum anymore. That can't be too familiar anymore. The third thing underneath the giving that you need to think about this morning, because of that steep, steep cost of the giving, can you imagine what kind of an insult to God it would be to reject that gift? to somehow think that you're okay on your own, to somehow think that you could add to what Jesus did, to somehow doubt the claims that the Son makes about Himself, woe to you if in your folly you reject the Son that God has given. 
Now, question five. Who is this for? The Son is given for whoever believes. Whoever. Not limited by race or or ethnicity, which is something that the New Testament apostles and writers would have to repeat over and over again because the most widely held belief of the day was that Messiah was coming to save Israel and judge the Gentiles. No. God gave that whoever would believe could be saved. It's also not limited by whatever you perceive your moral standing to be. We're going to see again and again in this gospel that God didn't give the Son for good little boys and girls. God gave the Son to rescue desperate rebels. This whoever here cuts the legs out from under a lot of your excuses for not coming to the Son. Well, he'd never have me because such and such. No. He'll have you because God gave the Son for whoever. Now, the whoever in this verse has us knocking on the door of something pretty important to consider. Namely, who the whoever will actually be. Who will be the ones to believe? See, the call goes out boldly and broadly to whoever will believe. But Scripture is pretty clear that only some will actually believe. Not all will believe. And John's Gospel later on is going to take us into the nitty-gritty of that. And will help us see pretty clearly who it is that's actually going to believe and receive this gift that's been given. But for now, suffice it to say that the only ones who will actually believe in the Son that God sent will be His sheep, to borrow language from later in the Gospel. The sheep will be the ones who will believe. They'll be the ones to believe because they've been given the supernatural assistance that they needed to believe. Because remember, this verse has a context. Where have we been in chapter 3 so far? We've been in a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. Born from above. Born by the power of the Spirit. Without that, you can't even see the kingdom, much less understand it. Or enter it. You have to have the Spirit's powerful new birth before we'll even see or admit our need, before we'll understand our desperation, before we'll see and appreciate the depth of God's love, the vast cost of Him giving His Son, the great peril that we face if we reject the gift. All those things can only be seen through the power of the Spirit giving us the new birth. Whoever will believe, God has given His Son. 
Now this takes us to question six. What is required? God loved. God gave. What's our part? How must we respond? With belief. God gave that whoever believes. Now, I hope that it's obvious by now, given the profound depth of what we've looked at thus far, that this belief here can't be some type of simple intellectual assent. It's not saying, well, I believe that giving took place. No, that's not it. It's not saying, well, I believe that Jesus came. Even I believe that Jesus died. No, it's not belief in that sense. It's belief in the sense of, I fling myself on that. I cast myself on the fact that God gave the Son. I cast myself on those truths and I expect those truths to hold me up. We've probably all seen horrifying video footage of of a small child in the window of an upper floor in a building that's on fire. Rescuers down below calling the child. And the child is terrified. The child believes that there are rescuers down there. But what is belief in that moment? Belief in that moment is the child flinging himself out of the window, expecting the rescuers to catch him. That's the belief in this verse. Will you fling yourself on Christ today? Will you admit your need? Will you receive the reality of His self-sacrifice in your place as your only hope? And will you receive it alone? Will you receive it casting aside everything else you think that you're adding to the equation? And will you receive it only? And alone. That type of belief, that type of trust, that type of flinging yourself on Christ as your only hope, that's what makes the difference between perishing and having eternal life. Those are the only two options, and that is the only deciding factor. I want to ask you one final question. And I really want to ask you to ponder this one. Because sometimes we struggle and sometimes we ask, well, yeah, how do I know that my believing is real? How do I know that I didn't just get spooked about hell, about perishing, How do I know that my belief isn't just merely an emotional response? Those are are good, honest questions worth considering. Consider those questions, if you will, in light of this last question from the outline. What is it that God has given? Or to ask it another way, what is it that you desperately want from God? 
What is it that you're crying out for? Say, God, give me and fill in that blank or else I die. It it may be a, a solution to some problem that you're currently facing. Maybe it's some treasure that you are seeking. Maybe it is, in fact, eternal life itself. Oh, I just need to know that I'm not going to perish. I need to know that I'm going to have eternal life. Whatever it is that you so desperately desire, look closely at this verse to see what God gives. He doesn't give eternal life. Eternal life is the result of what he gives. What God gives is his son. He is the treasure. He is the gift. And that is the way of knowing whether your believing is real or not. Knowing that your believing is real is that you cling to Jesus Himself as the only and best gift you could have ever been given. Now, we started talking about this back in the prologue, back in in the fourth verse of chapter 1, talking about the Word who came and in Him was life. Right? He was not the path to life. He is life in and of Himself. Another thing that John would write about in his first letter, a letter that he writes to Christians who are wrestling with this question, how do I know that my believing is real? How can I be assured of my salvation? He writes to them in the fifth chapter of 1 John, this is the testimony. And here he is going to say that God explicitly gives eternal life. How, How does he give it? This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. He gives eternal life by giving the Son. So this morning, do you have the Son? Is it He that you cling desperately to? As if He all by himself, not the benefits that he brings, he all by himself, as if he is the most worthy and the most beautiful gift you could ever receive. By God's grace, may it be so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that you are a good Father and that you generously give good gifts to your children. the ultimate example of which being your Son, which was giving yourself. Holy Spirit, would you open all of our eyes, some for the very first time, some wider than they have been before, to see the beauty of what you've done here. The glory of your love that motivated your giving, your sacrificing. The greatest thing you could possibly sacrifice. Oh, that we would have life 
because we have Jesus. Would you help us to cling to Him and in so clinging have eternal life? We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen.